we were living Miami Vice. In fact, the prosecutors uh, had this thing of getting together on the night that Miami Vice was aired on television. And we'd sort of drink beer and, and watch this show and smile at what they got wrong and smile at what they got right. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Michael Zeldin, who is host at the podcast That Said with Michael Zeldin, in which he interviews authors of recent books about politics and society. Michael's had a diverse career ranging from CNN legal analyst, uh, leader of the anti-money laundering and economic and trade sanction service line at Deloitte. He was a federal independent counsel, a prosecutor with the Department of Justice, and he's currently an elected advisory neighborhood commission representative in Washington, D.C. We had a good chat. You should take a listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Michael Zeldin of That Said Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Michael Zeldin, and I live here in Washington, D.C. with my wife. Our children are grown and off with their lives. I started in law school here and thought I would spend the three years of law school here and then return back to New York, where I came from. And all these years later, it's the John Lennon life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. All these years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. My career has been checkered. I have worked as a defense attorney. I've worked as a prosecutor. I've worked as a consultant. I've worked as a TV legal analyst. I've worked for the Democratic National Committee. So what I do is I tend to move around when things stop being interesting to me. So if you were to uh, look me up, you'd think, well, the guy can't hold a job. I, I defend myself by saying I've just got a short attention span. Well, I have noticed you've not only held a job, but held a lot of fairly eminent jobs along the way. So I think you do know what you're doing. What kind of family did you grow up in? Long Island, Jewish, progressive family. My grandfather on my maternal side was a labor lawyer on the labor side of it. My grandfather on my paternal side, along with a fellow named David Dubinsky, organized the International Ladies Garment Workers in New York. Socialists, some would have called us red diaper babies, uh, meaning that our parentage was very progressive. Went to you know summer camp with the children of Ossie Davis and Ruby D and Jackie Robinson Jr. and and the like. Um, so it was a you know typical progressive Jewish Long Island family. Great neck. Not too far from my own heritage, which is my dad. Jewish person from Brooklyn and my mom from upstate New York, Utica, and also kind of coming out of socialist families on, on both sides. I, I think often, Nathaniel, that the thing that I say that it, in my childhood and still in my adult life, the one thing that I embraced that had nothing to do with progressive points of view was I'm a Yankees fan. Yeah. See, my dad is from, for the Brooklyn Dodgers coming from Brooklyn and I wouldn't even repeat that to him that you said that it might alienate the two of you. <laughs> well, that's, that was true for that was true for my parents too. My mother used to refer to them as the the trolley dodgers. 
because that's what they once were called, because um, that's how they got the name, you know, dodging the trolley cars in Brooklyn when they were first formed. I chose the Yankees because Whitey Ford lived around the corner from my childhood home. And so we played Little League with his son, Eddie, and Whitey would come and watch. And so you can't not be a Yankees fan when Whitey Ford lives around the corner from you. I know my mom met Whitey Ford at one point, and I don't really know the story to that, but uh, he certainly was a, a, one of the great pitchers of all time. And a good guy. He was a really nice guy. What put the bug of going to law school, being a lawyer into your mind? Was it that labor lawyer in your family or how did that come to you? My father, he, he very much, I'm the oldest of three boys. He very much wanted me to be a lawyer in the, um, you know, sort of counselor tradition of, of defending, you know, the Eugene Debs's of the world. My desires uh, out of um, high school were more in the film photography area, but my dad's for me were to be a lawyer. And so here I am, a lawyer. You said before we started recording that you had multiple different colleges in your path through. Why was that? What were you trying to settle out as you moved through your undergraduate days? sort of who I wanted to be. So I started college here in Washington, D.C., because this was, you know, the late 1960s, early 1970s, and this was where the heart of the anti-war movement was situated. If I wasn't going to be in Berkeley, I was going to be here in Washington, because this is where all the protest marches were, and that was what my politics were, so I wanted to be here. But two years of, of that, and I decided that I just needed sort of to take uh, a different path, not away from politics, but just out of Washington, D.C. And so I took my junior year abroad in uh, Norwich, England. And then when I came back, I graduated from um, now what's called Binghamton University. Then it was called State University of New York at Binghamton. And I graduated from the Arts and Colleges College called Harper College, which was wonderful. And that was early 70s time of Mr. Nixon in office. Did you go right on to law school? I did. I did. Um, I went straight into law school and David Eisenhower was in my law school class. So Richard Nixon was president and um, his son-in-law was my classmate. And he was a very nice guy, Eisenhower. I liked him uh, a lot. We did work in the legal aid clinic together. Just a good guy. But yeah, so I went straight, straight into law school and then straight into legal aid and defender work after I graduated. Are you one of those people who, when you were in law school, it fanned the intellectual interests? Did you find it to be compelling and say, oh, I re- I'm glad I took this path? No, no, I didn't like law school. But for a, a professor named Eric Sorolnik, um, who ran the clinical programs and allowed me, starting in my second year, to work in the clinics, helping uh, people with social security disability and workers comp and landlord tenant and family uh, law claims. I'm not sure that I would have made it through law school. I found nothing about torts and commercial paper and contracts uh, interesting at all. I liked constitutional law. I liked uh, criminal procedure, but not for Eric Cyrilnik. I'm not sure that I would have stayed in law school. And you picked up another law degree later on, right? I did. I went to Georgetown University Law School and did what was called the Prettyman Fellowship, named after who is the namesake now of the federal court in D.C., E. Barrett Prettyman, who was a judge um, in D.C., and there was a fellowship in his honor, and I was uh, selected as one of the four fellows, Greta Van Susteren, uh, myself, to others. Um, we were all Prettyman Fellows, and I did an LLM in um, criminal trial practice and teaching. That was a two-year fellowship, and then I went off to be the Associate Dean at Antioch School of Law, now University of District of Columbia Law School. I was the clinical dean. So it was those things in law that interested me, helping people in you know distressed clinical law school programs are for legal aid and public defender, um, indigent uh, defense. And um, that's what I was attracted to. So did it start to feel like you were on the right path? Yeah. 
uh, I felt um, rewarded and it was rewarding. So I felt personally rewarded, like I was helping people and that made me feel good. And it was rewarding to uh, actually get relief to some of my clients. And, and that, that was good. But then I pivoted. I mean, uh, inexplicably, um, well, it's explicable. I can explain it. But I switched and became a federal prosecutor. And um, that seems an anathema to the politics that I held. But what I determined was that, honestly, uh, if you had the right sensibility as a prosecutor, if it wasn't about notches in your belt, but rather doing justice, prosecutors hold all the power. Defense attorneys, um, much less so. And I felt that I could do well uh, by the criminal justice system by switching. And so I did it. It you know, sort of mostly worked out, but I ended up prosecuting principally money laundering and drug cartels. So it wasn't like those were the people who were being, you know, unfairly targeted. I noticed that there's a, a, a long thread of working on the money laundering issue throughout your career. Does that give you any insight to the accusations that are made about Donald Trump using his real estate, helping people who wanted to launder money? Do you think there's anything to that uh, continued theme that's out there as one of the things that people point to about his ethics? It's interesting, and it's a difficult question because we don't really have transparency into it. What we know that is sort of a, a red flag is that as either Don Jr. or Eric said, I can't remember once, when asked, how do you finance your property since banks, except for Deutsche Bank, don't seem to lend to you? And he, he said, essentially, we don't need them we have, you know, Russian and other foreign money. And then there was a story in the um, press about how Donald Trump owned an expensive piece of property in Miami, which he sold to uh, wealthy Russian sight unseen for a lot more money than Trump paid for it. So those are sort of like hints that maybe there's an influx of foreign money the source of which um, we don't know, but it could well be that this is perfectly legitimate and that they are, there are a lot of wealthy um, foreign investors who invest in real estate in Florida and who invest in real estate throughout the, the United States. So that's one hint of it, um, but we don't, we don't know. The other thing, it's sort of related but separate from money laundering, is the question of whether there has been financial fraud um, engaged in the, again, the, the hints without there being clear indications from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which derived from Michael Cohen, who is a witness that I would not want to rely on um, in a courtroom, uncorroborated. Un, un and, and that is that, that um, the Trump organization uh, inflated values when seeking loans and deflated values when um, having to pay taxes. That's sort of more financial fraud than pure money laundering. But so I guess, Nathaniel, the answer to the question is there are hints of it, but uh, no no direct evidence that I've seen yet. So that time as federal prosecutor, that's Department of Justice, right? Yes. What are you learning about the way the world works as you're uh, you know, spending that time in that occupation? So when I got to the main Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., I had come out of um, a defense practice background. So I had tried many cases, but as on the defense side of the table. So I got there as a trial attorney, and they said to me, essentially, you need to cut your teeth as a prosecutor. And so they sent me down to Miami, where I spent essentially the next three years seconded in what was called Operation Greenback, which was a new idea in prosecuting, which was in the prosecution of drug cartels, rather than to follow the drugs, we instead followed the money. Uh, you know, it's a now a hackneyed expression, but but that was, it was a multi-agency. Prosecutors 
FBI, DEA, Customs, all of us co-located in, in this building in Florida, and we would follow the money um, prosecuting the money launderers. And it's completely eye-opening to be in Miami in the, you know, in the height of, you know, sort of the drug cartels sort of takeover of, of Miami. We were living Miami Vice. In fact, the prosecutors uh, had this thing of getting together on the night that Miami Vice was aired on television. And we'd sort of drink beer and, and watch this show and smile at what they got wrong and smile at what they got right. So you learn a lot about humanity living in, in those terms. And um, it was pretty eye-opening uh, t- to me. Was the next thing for you heading over to Congress for a bit? Um, well, I came back from Miami and went back to justice, uh, where I was the head of the money laundering unit there uh, until Robert Mueller became the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. And he um, moved me from the section chief position to be his special counsel for money laundering. And if you saw me on CNN, they always chironed me, you know, the the thing that describes who you are. They always listed me as special counsel to Robert Mueller, which was true. I was his special counsel for money laundering. And I was quite happy. I liked Mueller and I liked the job. But I got an offer from a fellow who um, I knew named Larry Barcella, who sadly passed away because he was a, a great human being, to see if I wanted to come and work for the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the investigation into the holding of the American hostages in Iran. And I thought, well, that was a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And uh, I uh, left justice, as I said, when my interests shift, I do that which is more interesting to me than that which is secure. And so I left and I went up and worked on the Hill. Uh, we worked under Lee Hamilton on the Democratic side. So I was deputy majority counsel. Larry was majority counsel. And we investigated the holding of American hostages in Iran. And we traveled all around the world, um, running down leads to determine whether or not there was any sort of secret deal made between um, then candidate Reagan um, and the Ayatollah Khomeini to delay the release of the American hostages in uh, Iran so that Jimmy Carter would be denied his October surprise, which was the only thing they thought would allow him to win re-election. We issued a report and we said we didn't find evidence of it, which is very different than saying it didn't happen. We couldn't conclusively say it didn't happen because we just didn't have access to people who were still in uh, Tehran. We saw a lot of expat Iranians who were in the government after the so the Shah falls. There's a, a sort of democratically elected government. Um, Bani Saad is the is the president, and then essentially the clerics take over. The Ayatollah comes in, and Bani Saad and his crew, those who weren't killed, were um, fled for their lives, uh, mostly to, to Paris. And so we met several of them in in Paris and we talked about their understanding of what was going on and whether they thought there was a deal and some thought there was, some were agnostic, Um, but we just couldn't get to Tehran. So we couldn't conclude that it didn't happen. We just said we couldn't find evidence of it, but it was exciting. What is your judgment? Do you think that there was a deal? I don't think there was. I I think that they may have um, sent out feelers to the Iranians to see what was going on there. I think um, Bill Casey, who was, you know, then becomes CIA director when Reagan is uh, elected, he had an intelligence background. So I'd be very surprised if he didn't reach out to people he knew to find out what the status of things was. But I don't think he would have made a deal. I don't think these guys were so morally corrupt that they would hold uh, Americans in hostage captivity uh, for them to win an election. You know, some people might say that's a naive point of view. I just, I can't get there. It's interesting because it kind of came to me that that had happened and was part of a whole series of sort of collaborations between Republicans, 
that are happening in foreign policy before they're elected. Like you had some stuff with Trump, uh, his team, which we still haven't fully sorted out at all, I don't think. If you were advising a campaign, would you advise them to stay the heck away from talking to foreign leaders? What is the line in terms of what what can you, as a potential next president, say or not say? Michael Flynn was criticized for reaching out to his um, soon-to-be Russian counterparts, and what he did may not have been appropriate, but uh, I think it's appropriate. I think Blinken, the Secretary of State now, and others in the intelligence community most likely reached out to their foreign counterparts saying, we've been elected and you know this is what our priority is going to be and we look forward to working with you. And so I don't think uh, there's anything um, wrong with you know pre-inauguration reach outs to say, you know, I'm looking forward to, to working with you. Now, Michael Flynn may have gone a, a step too far. I'm not so convinced of that, but because it, it did implicate Obama foreign policy and it was at odds with it. He was asking the Russians to take a vote um, different than the Obama administration may have been asking. So I think maybe that was a, a, a step too far, but generally reaching out, I don't have a problem with that. But I, and I wanted to add, you know, going back to the American hostages in Iran, one of the indicators to people who believe that it happened, and they may be right, but those who believe that it happened was they say, look at Iran-Contra, which takes place a little bit later, um, where they're trading arms to the Sandinistas um, in exchange for other, you know, weapons to the Israelis. So, one says, looking at Iran-Contra, the, these guys had every you know, capacity to do that then, because we see it in real time. Why do you disbelieve that they did it before? And I just say, I'm agnostic. Fair enough. You have this episode with Janet Mullins, right, where you become deputy, what's it, independent counsel, and then independent counsel there. Can you describe that episode in your life and yeah, sure. how that so, went? Yeah. So the Iran, so the investigation of the American holding of the American hostages in Iran ends. It was a, a, a one-year investigation, and because I resigned my SES position at Justice, I, I had no place to go back to it, and I, I wasn't seconded to the Hill. I, I resigned. I'm not the smartest guy, but I resigned. That investigation is coming to an end. The three-judge panel that appoints independent counsels appoint Joe DeGeneva to investigate whether or not President George Herbert Walker Bush and his administration violated candidate Bill Clinton's privacy rights by searching his passport files to see whether there was a letter of renunciation of citizenship. And the State Department starts an investigation based on some tips that they had that there may have been an illegal search of his his files. Janet Mullins was interviewed. Um, she was an employee in the State Department. She was interviewed. And they asked her, what does she know about this? She gave an answer, which was that everything she knows um, has been reported in the paper. The FBI agents reported it as her having said um, I don't know anything about this. Everything I know I've read in the newspapers. That statement they knew was not true. That's not what she said. Um, but the consequence of it was that there was a, that Geneva was appointed as independent counsel to investigate whether there was lying and and the, the trickery around the search of Bill Clinton's passport files, which they did do late at night. And Joe, who I knew and he and his wife, uh, Victoria, and I all worked together at various times in our career as prosecutors, called me and said, how'd you like to be my deputy? And I said, all right, fine. I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> you know, I like you. Um, and this sounds like a fun investigation. And so for the next two and a half or so years, we investigated how it came to pass that the Bush administration searched Bill Clinton's privacy-protected passport files to see whether or not he had written a letter of renunciation of citizenship while um, on his Rhodes Scholarship and how the fact of the search um, and what they found got leaked uh, to and reported by uh, Newsweek. So we spent a long time investigating 
that we issued a, a, a report. So all these reports that I reference are publicly available documents, and anyone who has insomnia can you know easily download them, and and um, I think it'll be a very helpful sleep aid. But our um, our findings were that they did in fact uh, conduct this search; that it wasn't appropriate; that they uh, violated the norms of the Freedom of Information Act and uh, the whole process by which these things are to be searched, that there was a leak of this to Newsweek for political um, purposes, but that uh, Janet Mellons did not lie. In fact, at our press conference announcing our findings, Joe DeGeneva apologized properly so to Janet Mullins, who was a nice, a very nice lady who suffered horribly because the FBI uh, misquoted her, but you know, once the die is cast, you have to see it through, you know, to the end of the game. And uh, and we investigated it, and we issued our findings, and apologized to to Janet, and um, turned off the lights. Two and a half year mark. I think these independent counsels and sort of analogous investigations, like impeachment, even are they're pretty rare, and. It doesn't feel to me like we have the greatest system for sorting this kind of stuff out. What do you think about that? Maybe this is a an example of it sort of sorting out pretty well in that small sort of small potatoes issue. We have had a, you know, like a pretty scandal plagued administration with a lot of very scary things happening, uh, including January 6th. I feel like we're really awkward in not having an established process to get to the bottom of things in timely fashion and punish perpetrators properly. What do you think? So I think Alan Dershowitz had this idea that we should establish in our government a sort of permanent office um, untethered to the Justice Department and not beholden to the executive branch, the White House, uh, the president in any way. I don't know how constitutionally exactly create that, but his idea was we should have a permanent office that looks at these things um, as they arise so that we don't have to go through this convoluted process of appointing an independent counsel when that statute was still in existence or go through the dance that we saw with Rosenstein and Barr and, and, and Mueller and that appointment process. I don't know. I mean, that's a good idea if it's if it's able to be established. I don't know how you exactly establish it, maybe through the courts branch of our government that we have that sort of like the old independent counsel statute was um, found constitutional because of the way it was structured. But I, I happen to like the old independent counsel law better than the law which was in effect at the appointment of Mueller, because what we saw in the appointment of Mueller was that while Mueller was, quote unquote, uh, a special counsel, independent um, counsel, he really was beholden to Justice Department policy. And as we saw at the very end, to the um, oversight and even overriding of his views by the attorney general. That's not what this was intended to be. It was intended to be, you know, completely independent of the attorney general and the Justice Department and the White House, because you're investigating, um, generally speaking, the White House and the White House is the boss of the Justice Department because they're executive branch agencies. The independent counsel statute, I thought, gave more independence to the to the prosecutors than the Mueller structure did, which I thought is a completely failed um structure, as we saw at the end of the Mueller investigation when Barr withheld his report for a week or two, issued his own, um, I think, incorrect summary of the Mueller report, sort of poisoned the public understanding of what Mueller's conclusions were, and that milk was spilt and it was hard to put it back into the bottle. So I didn't like that. I don't like that process at all. So, so Nathaniel, it's a long-winded answer. Say, if there was a way to structure something that was a permanent independent office to investigate these things. I think that idea is is a good one. If we can't do that and we have to do it on an ad hoc basis, I prefer the old independent counsel statute to the current um, system. And you then worked with 
to different degrees, Barr and Mueller. I mean, people who are like central to the recent stories. Yeah, I worked for I worked for both of them. Yeah, I mean, and that's a really unique lens into a pretty harrowing period that we've had between the attorney general and the president who was not at all averse to putting any amount of pressure on the, the Justice Department. How do you view the Trump years in its relationship to the Department of Justice? And what do you think we can do to change it so that maybe if Trump comes back to the presidency, that we don't face some of the same issues? Well, if Trump comes back into the presidency, we will face those same issues because he knows no guardrails. There are guardrails that every other president um, before and since um, has followed, which is that the Justice Department is not the office that defends the president of the United States individually or um, constitutionally, and that um, you leave them alone. Everyone more or less has followed that. John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy had a little bit of a different relationship, but that led to the change that prohibits that from occurring again. So unless you get an outlier like Trump in office again, I think the system is pretty well structured. The norms that people follow are pretty clear that you just don't interfere with Justice Department and you certainly don't interfere with them uh, to for your own personal political um, gain. And, and what Trump endeavored to do, and sometimes successfully and other times less so, was to treat the Justice Department as if it was his defense attorney agency. And um, we saw the consequences of of that uh, for our democracy, which were all bad. Nothing good um, came out of his trying to leverage the Justice Department to help him politically, because it, I think, added another layer of cynicism in our society. And I don't think we can afford any more layers of cynicism. It's pretty bad as it is. Well, I mean, there's a reasonably appreciable chance that he obtains the Republican nomination and wins the presidency again. And then we're in a big mess with him having learned a lot about what kind of people he needs to appoint to do his bidding in these areas of the government that need to be independent. Is there anything that can be done? Is there any hope for protecting the independence of agencies? Should he come back or someone like him? Yeah. Make sure you have a Democrat majority in the Senate and a Democrat majority in the House so that there are some protections against that abuse. But no, if you have a demagogue in in office who's going to engage in um, the types of political acts that the uh, that Trump did, um, and he comes back, or somebody else like him, DeSantis, you know, who's just not much different than Trump, just a little bit more polished politically. He's not much different. There's no constitutional structure that can be layered on to protect the agencies from interference. All, all, all you can do is hope that you have watchdogs in the Senate and, and in the House and in the inspector generals um, who will call out bad behavior. And he just fires inspector generals when they cross him. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's his constitutional prerogative. And so there's a lot of power when you're president. Yeah. You're, you have a lot of power when you're president. Yeah. That's why I didn't run for president. I was afraid I might abuse it personally. Well, yeah, me too. Um, unquestionably. Actually, the, he's the first president we've had where I thought I could do a better job. I never, <laughs> <laughs> I could nap all day and do a better job. Um, well, who was that, who was that president? Um, was it Harrison? Who was the, who was the president that was president for like 36 days? William Henry Harrison. He got pneumonia in his, uh, in his inauguration speech, I think in the, in the wet. Yeah. Yeah. He refused to wear a coat. He cut pneumonia and died. Him, I think I might have been able to do better. Could than, outdo. <laughs> I might have, if I live 40 days, you know. <laughs> Tell me about the stretch of your career where you're at uh, big uh, groups like Deloitte and Price Waterhouse. What was that like for you? Again, in this, I can't 
I have this ADHD when when things seem like they'd be more fun to do. I don't think you have to label it in a in a way that's negative. It seems like opportunistic. There's interesting things happening, and you go those directions. <laughs> right. So, thank you. Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting about the way careers are created. Is they aren't in many cases they aren't you know planned out. In most cases, they are. Uh, fortuitous, you know, one relationship leads to another, one job leads to another, one opportunity. You do good work, you get a good reputation, doors open for you, right? No, I think that's exactly right. And and um, in 2019, I taught as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School at Harvard. I was a, a resident fellow there uh, for a semester, and I used to tell my uh, students that life is not easily planned, that you can have a plan and then life happens and you do the best you can with what um, twists and turns life presents to you. But this twist and turn was, so I was doing all this money laundering stuff. 9-11 happens. They pass the Patriot Act, which imposed on uh, global financial institutions obligations to improve their anti-money laundering detection systems. So for the banks in the aftermath of the Patriot Act have uh, enormous responsibilities to help protect us from 9-11 style attacks on our society. Because remember, in 9-11, some of the money that was used for the flight training was laundered um, through banks in the United States. The banks um, mostly were unaware of it because their detection systems weren't up to the standards that uh, would allow them to have um, detected it. Not that they did anything you know, corrupt or intentional. It was just they, they, they didn't see it. And so the Patriot Act said to the banks, you've got to build better mousetraps. You've got to be able to see this stuff better. You're on the front lines of the flow of global funds, you need to be able to understand these flows better. Price Waterhouse um, and Deloitte, uh, the two big global consulting firms that I worked for, established practices to help banks do this. You know, they were the auditors or, or financial consultants, many of these banks, they had these relationships. And they said, we really need to hire somebody who can help us help them comply with their obligations. And so because I had this reputation of having uh, worked as a money laundering prosecutor and know, knowing something about the flows of money, they called and said, how'd you like to help us help you know, society by helping banks build these mousetraps? And I said, sure. And I um, did that for about 13 years. Was that a fulfilling part of your life? Yeah, it was very uh, fulfilling, very exhilarating it was my first real foray into the private sector. I had only had government or legal aid uh, salaries before. So having a private sector salary was an interesting phenomenon. Um, <laughs> it was, again, if what I wanted to do in my life was to do good so that, you know, on my tombstone, it said, you know, he did the best he could to help this world be a better place with the tools that he had. This seemed to me to fit into that the narrative that I was telling myself that I was doing good. And I thought it was a good thing to do to help financial institutions develop better systems to detect these types of criminal acts so that we don't have a 9-11 or, or something like that again. Did you come across anything notable that, you know, we were able to forestall or? Well, it's not that we, we, you know, sort of, caught the criminals in the act. It's not like in our investigations, we said, aha, look, here is son of 9-11. Thank God we found them. That was not what we were doing. We were really looking at their systems and saying, how do you endeavor to look for this money? I mean, think of yourself as the chairman of, uh, of the board of a global financial institution and how much money flows through them and how complicated it is to see what the source 
of the money is, lawful source, illegal source, and divine what the intent of the transactor is. I used to give this example. I'd say, suppose they build a profile of me as a, a customer, and my customer profile says, I receive my check, I deposit my check, I pay my monthly um, bills, and that's my profile, purely domestic profile. And then one of my children decides that she's going to, or he's going to spend uh, his or her junior year abroad. And so now all of a sudden I'm sending wire transfers abroad. Why am I doing that? How will the bank be able to determine why all of a sudden when I've never sent a wire transfer before, I'm wire transferring a pool of money, you know, every period of time. And let's say she's doing her, you know, uh, junior year abroad in in uh, in in Jordan or or Kenya or someplace where there are you know issues, and then try to expand that to a hundred million customers globally. So our challenge was to help the banks figure out how to determine the source of the money and whether or not based on patterns of behavior, we can help them determine whether there was uh, intentionality um, in sending money that might require a filing of what they call a suspicious activity report to, to law enforcement saying, this is suspicious to us because the pattern is different and um, we don't see a reason for it. And so we're going to notify you, government, that this doesn't make sense. It's anomalous. Look into it. Look into it, yeah. So that's rewarding stuff. It's just really hard. Do cryptocurrencies change that game? I mean, it seems like that creates a whole new black box of moving money around. Yeah, sure. There there are famous cases of um, cryptocurrency being used for um, international criminal activity. The transfer of that value um, through the blockchain or, or otherwise is is a more difficult um, investigative matter because there's less transparency. So law enforcement is working hard and the community, the community is working hard. There's a great organization called the Digital Chamber of Commerce, um, which represents uh, most of the uh, players in this digital uh, currency community. And they're trying very hard to make sure that they're good citizens on the right side of, of this issue so that they allow the, you know, sort of the evolution of the cryptocurrency to be more mainstream without it having the, you know, sort of reputation of being the currency of, of, of crooks and criminals. How do you move to the CNN analyst phase of your career? And how do you begin a podcast that's, uh, that you've been working on? I had two stints as a CNN analyst. One was um, the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky uh, period, and the other one was the, the Bob Mueller period. In each case, I was called by the TV stations to say, would I be interested in being an analyst? The first time they were interested in my being an analyst was because I was the last independent counsel. I remember I started working with Joe, Joe DeGeneva as his deputy, and then Joe um, had a conflict and had to retire, and I was appointed to take over. And uh, so I was the last independent counsel before the appointment of Ken Starr. So they said to me, you know what it's like to be an independent counsel. Can you come on and opine about the, the work of the next independent counsel? And I said, okay. And then the Mueller investigation occurs, and they say, again, you worked for Mueller. You were his special counsel. You know him, and um, would you come on and tell us about that investigation? So in each case, I didn't do anything really affirmative. I was just sort of in the right place at the right time with the right biography. And I enjoyed those jobs a lot and was content to do that and may have stayed on doing it more full-time. I still do it now sort of part-time, but I got a call from um, 
a woman named Faye Shapiro at a company called Compro.biz, uh, um, a B2B business platform. And she said, I'm interested in starting a, a podcast. Would you be interested in hosting it? That seemed like a very interesting thing to do. And so I said yes. And so for the last six or so months, I've been hosting That Said with Michael Zeldin, um, a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and all those things. And the the object of the podcast, not unlike your podcast, Nathaniel, is that I want to talk to interesting people who have interesting ideas, who can advance our thinking about these topics that we face as a society. And so I sort of choose my guests, more author-based, more book-based than than news-based, um, but people who I think are writing interesting things that I'd like to talk to them about. And you, as you said to me before we started, we, we had had some overlapping guests, Julian Zelazar, who has a wonderful book on uh, Newt Gingrich and what the Gingrich revolution led to in, you know, the creation of Donald Trump and the tea party and, and, and the like, I've got a focus lately on, um, race relations in America. And I've spoken to Bakari Sellers. I'm going to speak next week to April Ryan and then Eddie Goud, um, uh, junior. And I spoke to Jennifer Ho and Daniel James Brown about Asian American AAPI discrimination. So I'm trying to, you know, help again in this notion of I want to do good. I'm hoping to speak to people whose ideas my listeners can uh, hear and be advanced in their thinking. How do you pick a guest? How do you find them? And what do you think makes a good guest? I mostly am basing my um, guests around books. And so I read, you know, the New York Times book reviews and the Washington Post um, book section, the New York Review of Books. And I look for books and authors on topics that I think are important. I had Jim Acosta on um, the First Amendment when he, you know, he lost his credentials, Trump uh, withdrew his credentials from him. So I want to talk about the First Amendment. I had Don Lemon, who has a, a, an interesting book, and Bakari Sellers have interesting books on race. I had Michael Gerhardt, who had an a, a interesting book on Le- Lincoln and the lessons we can learn from Lincoln. So I look at the books and I say, is this a topic that I think will mo- help us understand what's going on now and move us forward in our in our thinking. And a good guest um, is one that is an engaging conversationalist, that you have the opportunity to ask a question, get an answer, have a follow-up question, and have it move in a linear way. How do you prepare for, like when when you were going to interview uh, Professor Zelizer, what, what do you do? I mean, you read the book, I'm, I'm sure. How do you prepare, like, a sequence of questions or do you, do you, to what degree do you ad lib? What's your process for putting together a podcast episode? I start by reading the book. In certain cases, I'll look at the book reviews in the New York Times or uh, the New York Review of Books to see if there's any themes that they're drawing out of it that I think I missed. And then I'm a very extensive note taker and I prepare lengthy four or five page outlines of everything that I think is important in the book and every question I want to ask about those topics as if I'm preparing, you know, sort of a closing argument for trial, very detailed notes, which I have in front of me and I use as I see fit. I try to be more like you um, and uh, conversational rather than reading notes off of um, a scorecard, but I have them laid out for me. And oftentimes I'll send the structure of the interview to my guest to say, this is how I want to work through your book thematically without giving them the exact question, but thematically, is this okay with you? And um, only 
probably one in four even reply to my email. So I take silence as a, a, an agreement and, and I go forward from there. What do you think is the audience? Do you have any sense from the way that uh, it comes back to you? Who listens to this? I mean, it's, it is a incredibly populated space, the world of podcasts right now. There's an infinity of them. They're not all people who have your prominence or are on CNN and have other platforms. But who do you think listens and do you get any feedback from that? When this call ends, I have a call with my producer and that's the topic of our discussion. So as of this moment right now, I don't know the answer. Hopefully after my next call, I'll have a better sense of who it is. I know that it's a global audience. What statistics I've seen, there are people listening from all over the world, but I don't know who they are, you know, what, whether, what age group, you know, or anything else about them. What are your aspirations for it? Like, what would you like it to turn into over time? You're enjoying enough, I assume, to want to continue and grow an audience or get particular guests. What do you want out of it? I want to have fun doing it. You know, I'm not trying to monetize it. I'm not trying to make myself a commodity. I'm happy interviewing people that I find uh, interesting to interview. And whoever listens, listens. You know, it'd be nice to have a, a larger than a smaller audience, but I'm mostly focused on the conversation and the ideas that, that we, we share. I post it to the iTunes or Spotify apps and if people find their way to it, um, I'm happy uh, for that. And if they don't, I'm still enjoying myself conducting the interview, just like I've been enjoying myself having this conversation with you. The interesting way you came to my attention as a neighbor is that you ran for and won an election to the local advisory neighborhood commission in our neighborhood in D.C. Why did you do that? And what are you learning in that role? I sort of felt that it was time to be involved in elective politics. I've always been sort of a kibitzer on the outside, either fundraising or offering you know, my two cents about a policy. But I thought it was time where I needed to help incubate democracy at the ground level, which is the ANC, the Advisory Neighborhood Commission, that level which is most directly connected to the constituents um, so that I could, again, do good. So I could help, whether whether it's hip, helping to fill a pothole or remove a fallen tree or deal with racial justice issues in our um, public school system. I had the time and I decided that this was a nice next step for me. And so I ran. Um, my wife was my campaign manager. It was just the two of us. And we knocked on, you know, all the, the thousand plus doors in our um, single member district. And one was, I think, about 52.7% of the vote. And, and what have you learned in that role? I mean, my brother is a county commissioner, does local politics. And, you know, it's a whole another world when you're dealing with regular citizens and with other local officials than the one that you've inhabited. What I've learned is that being an elected official is really hard, that I'm at the lowest level, you know, compared to the president of the United States, if that's the highest level. And I work very hard. I put in a lot of hours, way more than I thought when I ran for this office. And so one, I've learned that these elected officials, whether you like their politics or not, work hard, or at least most of them work hard. I work hard. And that too, um, notwithstanding, you know, sort of the anti-government rhetoric of a lot of uh, politicians in our um, society, people rely on government for for a lot of things from, you know, some potholes to healthcare, if that's the uh, a spectrum. And they hope and need their government officials to do their job and help them. I get a lot of requests from my constituents saying, can you please help me with this? 
my Alzheimer's stricken husband needs a real ID. He doesn't need a driver's license, but he needs a real ID. And we don't know how to get an appointment at DMV because he can't wait on a line. Or there's a blind person who has a broken sidewalk in front of their house. And I notice that when they walk with the cane, they're constantly tripping on this broken sidewalk. Or there's a tree that's fallen and squished part of our house. You know, all of those sort of very basic blocking and tackling sort of services that government people at my level um, are asked uh, to perform are really important. And so it's very rewarding to get a pothole filled or a broken sidewalk fixed or address questions of overcrowding in our elementary school. And so I am working hard, um, but really rather enjoy it. There's a sense of satisfaction in in doing good and in, in contributing to the you know well-being of our uh, society. Does it make you aspire to move up to run for city council or mayor or something else that you can do in the District of Columbia? What does this lead to, if anything? I think I've tapped out. I think this is <laughs> this is the highest office that I will <laughs> that I will run for. It may be that. That kind of local work is more important in a lot of ways. You can make an argument that politics at its most local level, Tip O'Neill said famously that all politics is local, but in some sense, perhaps local politics is as meaningful to people's lives as any other level of of politics. I probably interface more on a day-to-day basis with my constituents than the average United States senator from a a populated state. When you finished your interview with Julian Zelzer, you asked him if he had a crystal ball, what would he see going forward? What do you see sort of for our country in this kind of trying time we're in when you look forward to the big governmental issues at the federal level? The environment is, I think, are, are most existential threat. And if we don't address climate change radically, uh, I don't know what our great grandchildren will inherit. Exactly. We, we could turn, we have the capacity to turn into Mars if we're not careful. But so I think that's the, the, the greatest threat we face. But then second, and, 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 and importantly, we've got to come to terms with race and um, the stain of racism and the impact of racism on our society. We can't any longer not appreciate how we were built on the backs of slave labor and how that um, structurally continues to this day. And if we don't have, you know, sort of a reconciliation about it, you know, a truth and reconciliation sort of understanding of, of where we've been and what do we need to do, I, I worry about um, our democracy. It just cannot continue um, uh, on its current path. Certainly a huge question unsettled at this time. Do you worry about the threat of Trumpism? Well, I didn't like Donald Trump as a president uh, individually. I don't like Trumpism in the same way I didn't like McCarthyism or any other isms of, of, of that ilk. Um and yeah, I worry uh, about the resurgence of another demagogue, but I am more focused on those two other issues. I think that they are more sort of permanently important, whereas you know Trumpism hopefully is uh, a short-lived, like McCarthyism, short-lived period in our lives, which we'll study in the history books and not have to live day to day, but racism and environmental degradation is, is something that is, if not addressed, um, has terrible consequences for us. Is there a question that you wish someone like me would ask of you that I haven't? Um, no, I think this has been a terrific conversation. I think we've covered a lot of issues for people to, to, to think about, um, 
you didn't ask me about why I root for the New York Yankees, but that's that's okay. And um, I'm going to leave that as a mystery. Yeah, we'll leave that as a mystery. You know, a good. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to root for a team that's had giant resources and dominated many eras of baseball, but uh, maybe not currently. Michael, it's been a great pleasure. Anything else you want to say? Thank you very much for inviting me. And I wish you all the very best uh, with your podcast and in life generally. And likewise to you. That Said with Michael Zeldin is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.